WHMP. Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I am Buzz Eisenberg. And we are joined in the studio by State Representative Lindsay Sabadosa, the representative from the 1st Hampshire District, which includes Northampton and I think four other communities? <laughs> no. Six uh, other communities. The rest, other of the, communities. Sta- the rest of the state. <laughs> eight other communities. Eight other communities. Yes. Chesterfield, Cummington, Hatfield, Goshen, Plainfield, uh, Williamsburg, Worthing- West Hampton, and Worthington. Uh-huh. Almost got them in alphabetical order. We're, that, we're getting there. That's better than last month. <laughs> which, which, For those which, who are home which, keeping tabs, which we appreciate. <laughs> Listen, Representative Sabadosa, I want to uh, turn to the front page of today's Republican newspaper. Uh, we kind of need uh, D- Dan Crowley here to tell us what this banner is. I, there's a name for it in the newspaper world, the banner above that is kind of a teaser for what's inside, but a big blue banner with uh, uh, white lettering. Activists, moon lawmakers, <laughs> thong-wearing climate activists intent on stopping fossil fuel infrastructure, mooned senators, and disrupted yesterday's tax relief debate in the Massachusetts Senate. Senate the Senate has all the fun. That's why they're called the upper chamber. Is that right? <laughs> so many oh. jokes could be made. <laughs> um, well, I, I will say that climate protesters did manage to get themselves arrested in the House a few weeks ago, but I would imagine that they did not get as much press coverage as they have with this new Okay, stuff. so we want we should probably reveal and disclose to the listeners that we did begin our conversation this morning by say was the photograph in the Republican? It was in the State House news and the answer is Yes, a kind of a decorous faraway shot of the balcony. Let me read a sentence or two under the uh, headline, Climate Activists in Thongs Disrupt Senate Session. From the State House News, as we've noted, thong-wearing climate activists intent on stopping fossil fuel infrastructure mooned senators and disrupted yesterday's tax relief debate in the Massachusetts Senate. Someone in the gallery said to the senators and staff ga- gathered in the chamber, quote, we are going to be mooning you. You can look away if you wish. <laughs> that was thoughtful. That was thoughtful of them. The protesters in the balcony above turned around to reveal the words, stop passing gas, written on their nude behinds. Uh, it does go on to state that Massachusetts has an assortment of laws in place requiring the state to gradually move away from fossil fuels. So uh, your reaction to this breaking news, Representative Lindsay Sabatos, what will you do in the House of Representatives should something like this happen? Well, um, you know, I, I don't think we'll, we'll do very much. You know, people have the right <laughs> to come in and, and protest, and we're, we're happy to see that. And I think even yesterday, uh, I don't know if the article says it because I did not read the one in the Republican, although I have seen some coverage. Uh, you know, it, it You've took, seen some coverage. Seen very some coverage. good. Well Unfortunately, done. Unfortunately, not a lot of senators saw a lot of coverage, but I... <laughs> extra points coverage. for wordplays for Representative Sabadosa. Okay. Thank you. Um, but I will say, you know, it, it took quite a bit um, for the Senate to decide to to have the protesters removed. They did go up and chat with them and say, you know, we understand why you're here. We support um, what you're doing and we understand the importance of climate change and passing good legislation. And also we'd like to move on with our tax relief bill. So if you could put your pants back on, it would be helpful. But uh, the protesters, I think, really did want to make the statement of, of getting arrested. And so it took, um, I think it was around an hour or so before uh, the Police escorted them out. If okay. They were seeking good publicity. They, a, a lot of publicity. They got a lot of publicity. They did get a lot of publicity, yes. moon, as moon landings often do. <laughs> okay, so Buzz, I know that you uh, mm. like to uh, 
be professorial. I assume that when you saw this story, that you too went immediately to Wikipedia and other sources to discover, uncover the etymology <laughs> of mooning. Did you do that? I, I didn't. It is part of the lexicon, but I'm going to tell you the truth, Bill. What I said is, I know Bill's going to want to talk about this when I saw it. And, <laughs> and I said, but it, he can't say anything funnier than the actual copy itself. It said it all. Okay. Do you know where mooning comes from and how long it has been part of the English lexicon? No, that is Representative Sabadosa, this is going to be a major issue in your next campaign, I'm sure. I, I don't think so, but I do think that it is. It's existed in the English language for a very long time. Is that correct? It has been. Oh, more extra points for the yeah. representative. Because I feel like, was it not in a Shakespeare play? Oh, now that I didn't know. But it does go back way, way back. So... Let's just quote a sentence or two from Wikipedia. Mooning is the act of displaying one's bare buttocks by removing clothing and so on, uh, lowering the backside of one's trousers. Moon has been a common shape metaphor for the buttocks in English since 1743. And the, the word as a verb uh, has been used since 1601. Wow. These people were really onto something. <laughs> okay, uh, that, that Representative Sabados is now exercising her right to remain silent. <laughs> I, I think it's as old as the lunar calendar. Oh, well done, Buzz. Okay, so let's uh, turn to another matter or two that is in front of. This. I am looking forward to see how he transitions from that topic to another <laughs> one. <laughs> okay, so. Uh, well, let's, let's talk about some more fun stuff. You and I met last night at a celebration for Jane Lyons. Want to tell our listeners about that? We did indeed. We went to the Garden House to celebrate the retirement of Jane Lyons as the Executive Director of Friends of Children, whom she has been in this position for, I believe, 33 years. And she has been an advocate for children. For, for her entire life. Yes. And she, Friends of Children, really important. The programs they have, including CASA, the Advocates, for children in courts and outside of courts, and it's become a statewide uh, organization under her under her guidance and leadership. Absolutely, they've actually opened up, up uh, they've actually opened offices in Boston now as well. So it really truly is a statewide organization. And one of the things that I was talking to Jane about recently is a new program that they're working on that teaches financial literacy to children coming out of foster care. So you're paired up with a mentor and you're taught about how to manage your money and to make investments. And by participating in the money, they by participating in the program, they do a money match which is really exciting. So not only are you learning something, but you're also building up assets as you go because, as we know, a lot of times when wealth is passed on, it's it's through families, it's intergenerational. Kids coming out of foster care don't have this, so this is a way of giving them a little bit of a leg up. So I, I think Jane is brilliant in the work that she's done and the thoughtfulness she's put into the programs they offer. Foster care being a perennially difficult uh, program or series of programs in the Commonwealth, it, just it's not a system that works well. It's never worked well, despite best intentions. And for Friends of Children, Jane Lyons, to lead the advocacy on behalf of children across the Commonwealth for the past three or four decades has made an enormous difference. Indeed. So congratulations to Jane. It was a lovely party. Last night, celebrating her retirement, uh, David Sullivan, district attorney, was the MC. Uh, Many dignitaries uh, spoke and sent messages. The State House and the State Senate 
I know they were busy yesterday, but they did manage to get out a proclamation on behalf of Jane Lyons. Both both bodies did. So, uh, oh, and and who will be succeeding Jane? They, these were written on paper, though, just to be clear, given yeah. the the topic of conversation today. Yes. Paper who, citations. Indeed. Who will succeed her? I don't know that a decision has been made on that. I did ask her, and I know they're going through an interview process. I imagine Jane is going to be very hands on in that selection. But one of the things that she really stressed last night, and I think has stressed for years, is that friends of children is bigger than her. I know. I think when we think of friends of children, I think we all think of Jane. But there is a whole team there that is pulling in the right direction. And I think they're going to embrace whoever the new executive director is and make sure that the agency stays on track. Um, and what was that she said? She said not to, not to just uh, make progress, but to fix it. And I think when you have that mm. as the goal, we're going to fix it, not mm. just make a small difference. We're going to change this completely. That's a great mission to have. And Friends of Children, we should note, is supported substantially by the local community and announced last night that in honor of Jane's retirement, they had raised, the community had raised over $60,000 for its programming. Really, congratulations to Jane. Congratulations to the entire staff at Friends of Children. And I love the way in which Jane introduced all the staff and thanked uh, them all, as nice. well as the board of directors. That was really very moving. Let me ask you about another matter, if I might, uh, Representative Sabadosa. You mentioned that there was uh, legislation regarding psilocybin yes. that is percolating around in the... <laughs> Okay. There, there is indeed legislation around uh, psilocybin or, or mushrooms um, that has been percolating in the state house. It actually had a hearing earlier this week. It's a piece of legislation that I filed uh, along with Senator Jalen, uh, who represents the Somerville, Cambridge, Medford area of the state. And interestingly, you're going to appreciate this because I bet in that newspaper that you were looking at, yes. there is a lot of commentary somewhere there about Congress and dysfunction and polarization and all these words that appear in our newspaper every single day. But we are working on this legislation with our Republican colleague, Nick Boldiga, out of Southwick. So we're, we have a bipartisan effort brewing in the state house. And what will the legislation do? Well, the legislation would, uh, it would not create a legal market for, for psilocybin or for mushrooms, but it would legalize them so that you could possess, have them in your possession and you could share them. You could not sell them. So we're not trying to replicate what's happened with cannabis. Uh, there's been a lot of conversation about that. And other states are sort of moving more in that direction. Colorado and um, I believe uh, Oregon are moving in that direction of having places where you can go and use mushrooms and, and be monitored and purchase them. We're really just trying to make sure that what's currently happening in the state is legal and that people aren't being arrested for it. Decriminalized. And de well, so yes, although we aren't putting in a civil fine for possession, which some people have argued if you are decriminalizing, then there would still be a civil... Legalized, you're yes, right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so um, what's interesting about the hearing, though, is like you think, well, you know, people are always interested when you talk about mushrooms. And, but we had 90 people show up to testify on the legislation to talk about their current usage and the way how, how it's life altering, um, really for medical reasons, which is really interesting. We also had panels of doctors and researchers who came in and talked about how this legalization could really help them. There's a lot of stigma. Um, there's been increasing stigma over the last 40 years around mushrooms and how prior to the sort of war on drugs, there had been more, um, I don't want to say experimentation, I really want to say research, but research into uh potential medical benefits, particularly for people who are suffering from anxiety, depression, um, PTSD, um, and substance misuse. Yeah, a lot of us, uh, I know two people who are, I think the term is called microdosing yes. now, and, <clears throat> and who we had an expert on the show um, some time ago who actually was talking about those benefits, and it's 
it seemed unassailable. These these experiences seem uh, they were chronicled, mm -hmm. and the research was pretty sound. It seemed. Was there anybody who spoke against it? Yeah, and and let me piggyback on Buzz's question. Uh, did law enforcement appear to oppose it? No, law enforcement came in to testify in favor, actually. And uh, part of the reason for that is, I think, what we just talked about, some of the the um, ways that it can be used to, to treat medical conditions, PTSD being one that law enforcement experiences at very high levels. And one of the interesting things about, about mushrooms and psilocybin is that they, they aren't addictive. So if you take it one day, you, you have an effect. But if you take it the next day, it doesn't have an effect because it's in your system. It's not like you can continually you know, seek out uh, the same effects. And because of that, um, those addictive properties aren't there as there are for, for other types of substances. So it was a very interesting hearing, to say the least. Is there an expectation that this bill will advance? I think that's the correct legislative term. Yeah, well, it, so something similar was filed last session, although that bill was a decriminalization bill, so there were the civil penalties attached to it. Um, this bill got brought to me this session truly by local people. We sat over at Haymarket, and I, I talked to advocates who said, hey, we'd really like this bill to go in, and we'd like it to look this way. We think it's important. So there is a whole community in Northampton, which makes sense because Northampton has also passed a resolution in support of, of legalization as have um, communities, I believe, Cambridge and Somerville, Amherst, other places in the state. And they... Um, Begins will, to sound like the usual suspects. It sounds a little like the usual suspects, but I think then you see law enforcement coming to testify. That's and different. you see all of a sudden a bipartisan coalition. I mean, Representative Boldiga and I disagree on many things, but on this, we we have a lot of concurrence, and he's very excited to work on, on, on this bill in particular. So the bill last session did advance out of committee, to answer your question. Um, the chairs were very interested in this session. So we, we have, you know, good expectations. And again, other states are moving in this direction. Rhode Island is is moving that way as well. So it, we wouldn't be the first. We have a lot of examples to look toward. We are speaking with State Representative Lindsay Sabadoso. We're going to take a quick break. And on the other side, in just two minutes, we're going to talk about this article in today's newspaper, Efforts Resume to Legalize Assisted Suicide. We're going to also discuss abortion rights in Massachusetts. Back in two minutes. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Sunday mornings on WHMP means polka, polka carousel. Every Sunday morning from 8 till noon, TZ brings his award-winning polka carousel to the airwaves of the valley, playing the polka classics and the latest polka hits. There are polka hits? Brought to you by Saluzniak Funeral Home, Northampton's funeral home for over 110 years and four generations of unparalleled, thoughtful memorial care. It's polka carousel every Sunday morning from 8 till noon, WHMP. What's new at the Waitley Inn? Everything. The Waitley Inn has undergone a stunning transformation with a fresh new look inside and a beautiful wraparound porch with great views and expanded parking area. The only thing that hasn't changed is the menu, offering classic New England fare the Waitley Inn has become famous for. The Waitley Inn is open Wednesday through Saturday starting at 4 p.m. and Sunday from 1 to 7. Pickup is also available with easy online ordering. Visit WaitleyInn.com. Eat greatly at the Waitley. How many great books have you read? What's the next great book you'll read? Find it at the Northampton Outdoor Book Fair. 
this Saturday. Ten bookstores, including Broadside. Thousands of books. A book browsing paradise. Yes, there's fiction. Yes, there's poetry. And children's books. First editions, limited editions, art books, signed books. For a book lover, it's an afternoon in book heaven. Join Broadside and 10 more bookstores for the Northampton Outdoor Book Fair in the plaza behind Thorns this Saturday, June 17th, 11 to 6. What's the next great book you'll read? You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts, and messages from community nonprofits. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with State Representative Lindsay Sabadosa, the representative for the 1st Hampshire District. I'd like to turn our attention to the story in today's Republican that was in yesterday's Daily Hampshire Gazette uh, from the State House News Service. Efforts resumed to legalize assisted suicide, a long-running campaign to secure legislative approval for medical aid in dying, has yet to win visible support from top Democrats in the House and Senate, this article says. And as backers, backers gathered at the State House on Wednesday, they said Massachusetts remains a top focus while similar efforts unfold in other states. Representative Sabados, this has been a major effort uh, in a number of the previous legislative sessions. It certainly is getting a lot of press again this legislative session. The opposition seems to be dwindling, and yet this article says that the legislation has yet to achieve visible support from top Democrats in the House and the Senate, and I'm wondering whether you could tell us your perspective on whether or not this legislation is likely to become law this legislative session. Ooh, well, if I had a crystal ball like that, uh, I would. Uh, I, I don't know what I would use it for, but I'm not sure I would always use it to predict uh, the legislative cycle, which is hard to, hard to know. Um, there is a lot of support for this bill, and I think there's growing support among legislators. Uh, it's uh, Chairman, uh, I'm sorry, Leader O'Day is is working on this along with uh, Representative Ted Phillips, who was the legislative aide for Lou Kafka, who championed this bill for a long, long, long time. And then, of course, you have Senator Comerford on the on the Senate side, who is leading this. It, it's. Um, it's, it's always heart-wrenching to watch the hearing for this bill because you hear a lot of the stories about why medical aid in dying is so important. Um, but there is pushback, um, and there's there's pushback, I think, often from the usual suspects. Um, so, you know, you have, you have religious organizations uh, who, who are not in support of that. Whether this is going to rise to the top this session it remains to be seen, but I, I do think there's growing momentum toward, uh, toward passing it. The... The hearings that you refer to and the difficult and emotionally wrenching aspect of those hearings is something that I always find, uh, always, but have found to be really, really different from a lot of uh, proposals and debates that go on in the sense that these are really personal stories of people saying, if only my father had had this. He wanted this, and he died in a way where he was denied the dignity 
to decide for himself how he wanted to pass. And I think that really must get to legislators in a way that, well, other kinds of uh, business before before the Senate and the House don't. I, I think that the hearing is very heart-wrenching. I agree. I would argue, though, that oftentimes when you're before committees like children and families and public health and healthcare financing, the stories are always really heart-wrenching. The suffering is very widespread. I mean, I, I sit on healthcare financing, and earlier this week um, we were talking about uh, a bill that would increase the amount of life insurance a senior can have uh, before, so that they can still qualify for health insurance. And um, we have senior citizens in this commonwealth who have health insurance policies that are worth $2,000 and they can't access mass health because that's too many assets. Um, so they've basically bought something to save for their own funerals and it is prohibiting them from getting affordable health care. Mm. So the, the stories we hear are often horrific and sometimes it feels like you're weaving waiting through all of this trauma to figure out what is the the worst thing that's happening right now that we can fix because truly when you sit there and hear story after story it becomes really hard to figure out what are the right strings to pull. So I agree that this bill is super important, um, and there are many others that are really important that I think need to go along with it this session. Um, but it does boil down to how, how much can we do and how much is the public willing to allow us to do too? Um, because if there is a lot of pushback, that becomes very tricky. We should note that there was a vote on this in on this issue in 2012, yes. and voters in Massachusetts statewide rejected the ballot initiative, or the ballot question, uh, 51 to 49. And at that point, only Oregon and Washington State and Montana had legalized medical aid in dying. Uh, but since then, there have been some seven other states plus Washington, D.C., that have authorized the practice uh, mostly through legislation. According to this, according to uh, compassion, compassion and choices. Yeah, and there's sort of this. Um, I, I don't, I don't know quite how to phrase it, but there's this sort of common knowledge that we say if something fails at the ballot, like this measure has, it's usually about ten years before the legislature is willing to say, okay, well maybe public sentiment has changed. And when we do try to pay attention to what people are saying, um, that vote was awfully close. And I remember I, I remember being very supportive of it at the time when it was um, when it was coming up and voting for it at that point. But um, I don't know. We're right at the 10-year mark. So I do think it's going to make it over the finish line. How quickly that happens, I, I can't tell you. Let's turn to another legislative priority, abortion rights in Massachusetts. What is the great in general court doing, that's the legislature, uh, to protect abortion rights at this point in Massachusetts in view of the nationwide push by the right to say, no, the government, not women, <laughs> should control reproductive choice? Right. Well, so nothing has, has come up quite yet, although there have been a lot of hearings on different pieces of legislation. I think that we're moving in a couple different directions. I know that um, several groups, Reproductive Equity Now, Planned Parenthood, and the ACLU recently came out about a bill that they're pushing for that is cell phone data tracking. Um, so to prevent, to, it, yeah. yes, to prevent selling that data, so where you go, because I think we all, at least I use GPS constantly to tell me where I'm supposed to go, um, you, they can sell that data to third-party data brokers. Such as 
other states that yes. want to track women coming to Massachusetts for uh, medical procedures. Uh, it is really important it that, is really to prohibit important. this tracking of people. And, and not, that, o- not only for abortion. It, for, but for so many reasons. It's really important that you know we aren't just being monitored at all times. So yes, that's one huge piece that I think I'm hoping that we'll take up because I don't think that we dealt with the privacy issues in the SHIELD law that we passed last session. It was kind of the piece we left on the table. I have been working really hard with Rep. Owens and Senator Kennedy on a piece around health data privacy. So it's really almost the companion to the cell phone data tracking. So you can't sell where people are going. You also shouldn't be able to sell their health information, which we are putting into our phones on a regular basis. Um, And we've actually been working with um, a lot of the tech companies to talk to them about what can we do to prevent this. And it's been interesting that that some of them are starting to come on board and talk to us about uh, really the nitty gritty of how their businesses work so we understand that better. And then um, not directly related to abortion, but I think um, tangential and important. Um, Christine Barber and I are continuing to push a bill that allows... Who's that? She's a representative from Somerville. And uh, this is a piece of legislation that would allow pharmacists to prescribe hormonal contraception. This just was included in the Senate budget. We're working to try to get it in the, the House to agree to keep it in the budget. But even if it doesn't, we're trying to get that through. We would be the 27th state to pass this. And so it means you could go into your pharmacy and get hormonal contraception from your pharmacist instead of waiting for a PCP appointment uh, or to find a new PCP if you've just moved to the area, a primary care physician. Uh, I had someone in my office the other day who said that their child was trying to get on birth control and they had to wait seven months for an appointment. So these are the types of stories we're hearing. We're trying to figure out how we break down barriers to access um, really on all fronts. So it's an exciting time. And if you want to support more work locally uh, to support our abortion fund in particular, the Abortion Rights Fund of Western Massachusetts will be having its annual event Saturday the 17th at Gateway City Arts in Holyoke from 11 to 1. We are focusing on youth activism. So we have amazing young people who are going to speak about the work they're doing in the community. And as an added bonus, you can just transition right to Holyoke Pride afterwards um, and make it a really fun day. Representative Sabadosa, before you go, I would like to ask you a question that is totally, totally outside your the realm of your legislative responsibilities, but as a legislator, as an elected official, uh, as a community leader, I would appreciate your perspective on the indictment of Donald Trump. Um, Other than it's about time? That is a perspective. And how it is affecting the country or the body politic? I I think that this is something that we all expected to happen sooner or later. The writing has been on the wall for quite a long time. I think it's been frustrating that it has taken so long. Um, It will be interesting to see what happens within Trump's own party um, and whether there's an acceptance of this indictment and the fact that there has been legal wrongdoing and whether they decide to make him their candidate for president and how the other uh, other candidates react to this. I mean, I think that's this is sort of a, a moment for the Republican Party to decide what track it's on. Um, so we're, we're all watching. We're going to leave it there. This has been our monthly time with State Representative Lindsay Sabato. So we really appreciate you coming in. Thanks so very much. Thank you. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.
For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. A portion of Route 2 in Greenfield is now open after a multi-vehicle crash yesterday afternoon. According to police, a man was traveling with his dog driving westbound on the Route 2 bypass when he veered into the oncoming lane, crashing into a Pete's tire barn truck, which led the truck to collide with another vehicle. One party involved was life-flighted to the trauma center and two others were brought to Franklin Medical Center with non-life-threatening injuries, according to police. Authorities have not released names of the victims involved. Plans to use the former Harley-Davidson dealership in Southampton as temporary processing facility for illegal immigrant families is being put on hold. State officials have determined the cost would be too prohibitive and the property is no longer under consideration. The Department of Housing and Community Development had reached out to town officials several days ago about the site. Along with several others in Western Mass, they were evaluating as options. A former priest in Granby is being charged in connection with stealing more than $100,000 in parish funds for personal use. 43-year-old Tomas Gorney of Amherst is scheduled to be arraigned today in Eastern Hampshire District Court in Belchertown. Gorney was a priest at the Immaculate Heart of Mary Church in Granby. He allegedly used parish funds over a period of three years to purchase items including power tools, a riding mower, food, wine, video games, and more. The expenses were charged to credit cards that the Springfield Diocese had to pay. Mixture of sun and clouds today with scattered showers and thunderstorms developing mid to late afternoon, a high of 78 to 82. Showers continue here tonight, some drizzle as well, overnight lows of 56 to 62. Saturday looking damp with rain, drizzle, and even some thunderstorms, a high of 68 to 72, scattered showers on Sunday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This news update in Spanish is brought to you by our friends at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. La Corte Suprema ha conservado una ley federal que da preferencia a las familias nativas americanas cuando se trata de adoptar niños nativos en hogares de guarda. El fallo de la Corte de 7 a 2 el jueves deja en vigor la Ley de Bienestar de Niños Indígenas de 1978 que tiene como objetivo revertir siglos de esfuerzos aprobados por el gobierno para debilitar la identidad tribal al separar a los niños nativo americanos de sus familias y criarlos fuera de sus culturas tribales. La ley requiere que los estados notifiquen a las tribus cuando los casos de adopción involucren a sus miembros o niños elegibles para ser miembros de la tribu y que traten de ubicarlos con su familia extendida, su tribu u otras familias nativas americanas. Los líderes nativos americanos celebran el fallo como una gran victoria. En otras informaciones, el presidente Joe Biden instó el jueves al Congreso a aprobar una ley que brindaría un camino a la ciudadanía estadounidense para los jóvenes traídos al país ilegalmente cuando eran niños, utilizando una noche de cine en la Casa Blanca para subrayar su apoyo a los latinos. Biden y su esposa Jill presentaron Flaming Heart, una película dirigida por la actriz Eva Longoria en el Jardín Sur de la Casa Blanca para una multitud que incluía al elenco de la película líderes latinos y dreamers que no nacieron en los Estados Unidos, pero llegaron al país cuando eran niños y lo conocen como su hogar. El martes, Biden organizó un concierto al aire libre para celebrar el 16 de junio, durante el cual denunció el racismo como una fuerza aún demasiado poderosa en el país. Los votantes negros y latinos son distritos electorales importantes para Biden, quien se postula para la reelección de 2024. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Hollywood Media a través de WHMP. This news update in Spanish has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. 
And this is our weekly time with Max Page, who is the president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association. We start with the UMass fight song. The title of this segment for many, many years has been Your State You, although, of course, it has expanded as Max moved into his leadership position at the Massachusetts Teachers Association uh, for four years, I believe, as vice president and now as the president of the MTA. Max Page, we are all waiting for the Supreme Court of the United States to hand down a decision on affirmative action. And this will have enormous consequences for higher education across the country. I'm wondering if you would be willing to share with us what you can. I understand we don't have a decision yet, but we're going to have it very soon. Your perspective on affirmative action and what will happen here in the Commonwealth, please. Sure. So this is a very, very important um, case in which um, a bunch of plaintiffs have, have sued, sued Harvard and the University of North Carolina, and by all intents and purposes, all um, selective colleges and universities, and saying and arguing that they should not be able to use race in, in, in admissions decisions. And obviously, the quest to have a diverse pool, diverse um, classes on public college campuses and private college campuses all across the country has been a major effort to um, for advancement of the society in general and for um, underrepresented groups for for decades and what this threatens to do is finally completely upend that system and say you may not consider you colleges and universities may not consider race when deciding whether to offer uh, admission to that college university and the, this the full expectation although we could be wrong the full expectation based on the status of this court and the way they the, the questions they asked and the opinions they rendered during the oral hearing suggest that they are going to throw out um, 40 years of um, affirmative action or, or you know race conscious admission policies with regard to race conscious admissions policies I think that one thing that uh, court observers and legal analysts will be considering is what the Supreme Court says about diversity in general, whether this court any, believes anymore that there's any value whatsoever in having diverse diversity in college campuses and in classrooms, because they might well go so far as to say, well, no diversity initiative is permitted. Uh, for example, if you want to have uh, uh, admissions that consider the economic status of uh, pr prospective students, that's not prohibited because, well, you might actually have a more diverse, uh, more people of color uh, in the class if you consider economic uh, disadvantage because, well, there are more uh, people of color who are poor. And I'm really concerned about the potential reach of this decision and how broad it is because Clarence Thomas, for example, says, do not even consider anything that comes close to consideration of race and do not consider anything that could be a proxy in any way whatsoever. Your thoughts? Yes, that is a grave concern. Uh, let's just be clear. There are decisions made by, by selective colleges and universities all the time. Um, the benefit that a student gets having been um, uh, a, a, an applicant gets if they are a child of an alumnus, for instance, or are an Who, we should point out, happen to generally be 
white and rich. So affirmative action for rich white people, that's just fine. But any other kind of quote? Uh, there's, no, there's, no, um, there's no indication that they are prepared to throw that out, although there are some who are, who are pushing back against that. Um, uh, um, you know, college athletes. Well, is that considered, uh, is that legitimate? So far, it's, I mean, there's a huge, huge business behind that. So there's actually a, a bunch of ways in which we prioritize that. We prioritize by, you know, places will prioritize by geographic diversity. We assume they, the, the court is not addressing that. They are fully focused on the question of racial diversity, and they see it as a zero-sum game. Either those, quote-unquote, un, undeserving students who are, who are, who um, don't have the scores or tests or grades as they as the colleges or as the court sees it get a head up therefore someone else is hurt when in the whole idea behind diversifying our education system is actually to improve it for all students and to provide um, access to opportunity that has been been so denied in a in a society so riven by long-standing uh, structural racism one aspect of this debate that I find so interesting, and you could you could clarify some of the un- underlying facts for me if you would, Max, is that, uh, of course, students who uh, go to schools that are not of the highest quality, that haven't had all the advantages of uh, counselors and teachers and after-school uh, advisors and tutors and the like, once admitted, they actually do just as well as everyone else uh, who came from all those advantages uh, and all those econom- economic uh, affirmative action kinds of lifestyles. Um, and that's really interesting. It's, this is all about admissions. Who gets a chance? Who gets the chance? That's, that's exactly right. Um, it's, the, it's getting over that hurdle of admission is sort of often the, the biggest leap, but that, people act, that, but that students actually fully succeed. And it does render them some enormous advantages. You know, there a long time ago, there was the argument by one of the professors at Harvard Law School who said, look, we should have some basic levels of, you know, a, a proof of ability, and then we should just do a random lottery because the, the benefits that accrue are so large, but the differences in students and what they could contribute are, um, are, are, are so relatively small. I do want to say, Bill, that what this is going to do, if this happens, uh, again, it's, we, they could surprise us. Uh, there could be a more moderate approach here, but meaning a more incremental approach. But what this does say is that the, that the issues will have to come back to the states. And we have proposals, that is the Massachusetts Teachers Association has what's called the Cherish Act, which would create a, a guarantee that all students could go debt-free to any of our public colleges or universities. It's not a perfect solution, but certainly part of the issue is that what has gone along with structural racism is inequality, economic inequality. And so we know there's a huge gap between fully qualified, able students of color able to go and complete college versus their white and wealthier counterparts. So at least we can uh, narrow that gap by making college a guarantee, guaranteed debt-free. That's something we propose, and the, the, the Senate is very interested in that. So that is one response that our state can have. And the governor has just set up a council to, um, to address the issue in anticipation of this decision. She has created an advisory council for the advancement of representation in education. So a whole series of organizations, including ours, 
who will be figuring out how do we maintain um, equality of access to our public colleges and private colleges and universities in the Commonwealth in the wake of what is expected to be a bad decision. And that will be the charge, the responsibility of the Advisory Council for the Advancement of Representation in Education? That's exactly right. It's going to be a, a look at a, a range of ways that we can maintain um, and increase the diversity of our public and private colleges and universities in the state. We leave it there. We've been speaking with Max Page, who is the president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association and who, who is with us every Friday. Max Page, thanks so much for your time, your insight, and your leadership. Thanks so much. Bye, Bill. Have a great weekend. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. In 1967, Judy Collins gave us a remarkable album, Wildflowers. I've looked at clouds from both sides now. On Saturday night, July 1st, Judy Collins takes the stage at Northampton's Academy of Music with the Rasa String Quartet to perform the Wildflowers album. Place around the collars of the blouses of the ladies. Judy Collins at the Academy. With the Rasa String Quartet, the chamber folk essence of the Songs of Wildflowers breathe in new ways. Light gets into the corners, and the melodies drink like a beautifully aged wine. Judy Collins performing Wildflowers and other songs from her 60-year career. Get tickets now at the Academy of Music website or box office. Judy Collins with the Rasa String Quartet, Saturday, July 1st, 8 p.m., Academy of Music, downtown Northampton. What is Brockton, Massachusetts known for? For me, Brockton means a good night's sleep. Because Brockton is where they make therapeutic mattresses. Not Tempur-Pedic, not trying to mislead you here. Therapeutic, the lesser known mattress made in Massachusetts. Does that alone mean they're any good? It doesn't, but they are good. In fact, they're great. On par with famous name mattresses that cost a lot more. Hi, it's Robin from Talon Furniture. A lot of people have purchased a therapeutic mattress at Talon Furniture over the years, at least a thousand, and they're all sleeping well. A therapeutic mattress really is as good as the famous name mattress. And they're made by fellow base daters. In the grand scheme of the global mattress economy, therapeutic is close to home. You like eating local? Try sleeping local. What I really love is a therapeutic mattress is clean. No toxic chemicals or off-gassing. I've walked the factory floor. I've seen how they're made. Talon Furniture, home of Therapeutic, just down the hill from Amherst College, in the sleepy part of town. The beat goes on. The beat goes on. Drums keep this is indeed Artbeat with Donabel Cassis. Donabel reviews for us and brings very special guests, artists, and performers throughout the Valley to tell us what is happening here in our communities, in the art scene every week. Donabel Cassis, the honor of this introduction in the microphone, they're all yours. Thank you, Bill. Good morning. This month, APE Gallery in Northampton has a curated summer program titled ARC, A-R-C, which means Activate, Research, and Create. It's in its seventh season, continuing the investigation of a contemporary art gallery as an active space within the community. And starting on June 25th, 
there will be an immersive green space meets oral history preservation experience. It's titled Story Sound Arbor by Michael Medeiros, and he joins us today. Welcome, Mike. Hi, thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Now, I love how this project examines the relationship between the public, the work, and the space in which it's made. And before we actually talk about the installation, I wanna talk a bit about you and your work. Um, you're a poet, a yeah. potter, and a photographer who explores the notion of mindfulness and yeah. methods of creative understanding. Can you explain to us what that means? Yeah, so a lot of my work combines the written word, whether it's poetry, um, gathered oral histories, and ceramics, as well as varied imagery through photography and artistic uh, presentation. Um, in this case, uh, I'm trying to preserve in a kind of a very old school method, um, the histories of people's garden experiences. And this is a continuation of something I've been doing for about a year now. It started last June. And the, the overall project is called We Are Gardens Haunted by Each Other. So it's a preservation in garden terracotta of people's stories. You know, I smoke fire the, the stories that I gather from these people, usually have them hand write it onto the terracotta um, as a way of preserving in a, a, a changing time of climate change and the way people live and work the land and experience the world. It's just kind of, you know, you think about the shards that carry on you know, you find a 2000 year old shards sometimes with little pieces of history upon them that you can learn from. And that's kind of what this is. I'm kind of hoping that these pieces survive our era onto another to share the personal stories of individuals. Uh, and the mindfulness comes in through the writing session. So for myself, my own practice is grounded in a meditative practice where I try to get into a very specific creative space. Um, and so I've been offering that to others. I'm, I'm currently being trained in mindfulness-based stress reduction, which I teach through mindfulness and clay courses and mindfulness and writing courses. And I feel like getting into that space and helping others get there allows those stories to be told with more clarity, with more personal strength. Um, so that's, that's what I'm doing with that at this particular residency. It's really exciting to be headed over to the gallery uh, on the 25th. What a beautiful practice and sort of an entryway into a literal immersive space to be able to experience that and to participate in that. And so describe to us, since we are on radio, what Story Sound Arbor is when we'll walk through the doors. Yeah, so this is the evolution of the pieces that, I, like I've said, that I've made over the past year. It started at the Haskell Gardens in my hometown of New Bedford, Massachusetts continued at 50 Arrow Gallery in East Hampton over the winter. And now this is taking it in a direction where voice and music and, you know, sound of these garden spaces are going to be brought to these arbor towers that I'm creating. And so this is this week will be a process of actually creating those towers. Uh, I've got like um, some ceramic portions made already. But during my time there, I'll be making more and gathering stories that'll go with it. So it'll be both live spoken readings, it'll be recorded readings, um, and it'll just be in that traditional, it's kind of upending the traditional arbor, garden arbor space, you know, which can sometimes be an exclusive space. You know, you, you go to a lot of these garden, um, the famous gardens around the state and the country, 
And a lot of them are very wealthy spaces that have been transformed to a public space, but it comes from a place of wealth and you're experiencing that. This is not coming from that. This is coming from a space of every individual who walks through this project, who shares their story, is creating this space in the terracotta, in the greenery that I'm bringing in, um, and just you know, making it a very welcoming open space, I hope. So, Michael Bedaris, let me try to uh, gain some clarity for myself on what will happen when I walk into APE. I walk through the door, then what? What do I see okay. or hear or experience? So, uh, during most of the week, from Sunday through Friday morning, I'm actually going to be in a silent retreat, which is part of my teacher training. It's the only week that I can do this, which I'm very excited to have at the residency. So I will be sitting in a silent retreat there, but I'll have space for people to join me at certain hours um, every day. So they'll come in and they can join in the silence and I have uh, a space set out for them with with the uh, prompts to kind of prompt their writing prompt their storytelling and share it with me. You know, there'll be pots for people to write on with liquid clay, which is what I use to block the smoke that I use to fire these words onto the pots. It's a very traditional method, you know, Portuguese method from, in, from my part because my heritage is Portuguese American. Um, so people will come in, it'll be a quiet space at first. And then on Friday, we're gonna have a performance, uh, poetry reading, music, and on Saturday, it'll be once again a very immersive space. People will be invited to like share their stories. I'm hoping to have a, a big variety of people to come and share their stories. So people come and share their stories. And well, Donna Bell, why don't you take it on from there, please? <laughs> right. Well, you know, um, you know, I'm interested in part of the green space because you call this a green space, and I know there's a story behind the plants that you're going to use in this installation. Yes, uh, so I have a lot of plants that are, we're gonna create a small arbor, garden arbor space. So I'm bringing in the plants, they'll be there the whole week. And because there's enough light coming in through the big windows at the gallery. Um, so it's just a place to kind of escape the city, experience this greenery and experience your, their own, everybody who comes in, I want them to experience their own stories as strongly as possible. And that's what I hope it'll, it'll involve, you know? There's gonna be a variety of plants in there. And you know, I grew up, my grandfather's greenhouse range as a child was really influential for me because I grew up in a very uh, urban area, you know? And um, to have that greenery in that space, in that concrete world, um, shaped the way I've approached my life. So I know how important these spaces, however small, however large they are, can just really shift your appreciation of the world and understanding of the world. So I just want to hear what people have experienced from their own lens in that. I mean, I, I, I love that you're really transforming and reimagining that space. It's a gallery, right? It's on yeah. Main Street in Northampton at 126 Main Street. Uh, it's your typical white walled space with a big window. And you know, you're transforming it into a garden with arbors yeah. <laughs> and pottery to write on. I mean, I think it sort of makes you literally step into another world, but to also kind of reflect. It's a place of reflection and expression, which um, I really appreciate. So uh, 
this sounds like an amazing project and I know it's been in the works for a while and I hope people definitely come see it. It's called Sound, Story Sound Arbor by Michael Medeiros. It's at APE Gallery at 126 Main Street and it starts on June 25th yes. through July 1st. And if you go to the APE Gallery website, you'll see that there are several um, mindfulness writing sessions that are open to the public. It's free and open to the public. And there will be a live music and reading starting uh, on, is it July 1st or June 30th? June 30th. That'll be at 7 p.m. on June 30th. 7 p.m. And so, um, you know, I know you do a lot for the community. You um, co-founded the Slant Poetry Festival at the Emily Dickinson Museum, and you um, do the Poesia Pottery uh, Studio, and you're a photographer. Thank you so much, Mike Mondiris, for what you do for the community, and I look forward to seeing your show. Thanks for having me here. I hope a lot of people come to play in the dirt. <laughs> that will be fun. Thank you so much, Mike Madeiras. We really appreciate it. And Donna Belcasas, thank you for bringing Michael to our show today. Have a great weekend, everyone. Thank you for joining us on Talk the Talk. The beat goes on. The beat goes on. The drums keep pounding a rhythm to the brain. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. Which says we need to appeal to the wealthy white people of our region because the marginalized people do not have money. Which is true, but as we know, that's what happens when you have centuries of policies that are oppressive, that are racist. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts. Northampton Neighbors is free of charge and open to all with a range of social and volunteer opportunities as well as services and support for members 55 and older in the city of Northampton. Need help? Want to help? Join us as a member, a volunteer, or donor. Northampton Neighbors is about more than aging in place. We're about engaging in place, this place. Find us online at northamptonneighbors.org or call us at 413-341-0160. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls. WHMP.com on Northampton Radio Group Station. It's 10 o'clock. This is CBS News on the Hour, presented by Indeed.com. I'm Deborah Rodriguez. They're cleaning up in the panhandle after severe storms spawned tornadoes that killed at least four people, three of them in Texas, one in Florida. Among the hardest hit, Perrytown, Texas, where a mobile home community was flattened. Correspondent Jennifer Kuyper. Hail and high winds, and the National Weather Service in Amarillo confirmed that a tornado hit the area. The local fire chief tells ABC7 a mobile home park took a direct hit. Resident Sabrina Devers lives in the area. This whole area is just white. Total devastation. First responders from surrounding areas and from Oklahoma descended on the town, which is about 115 miles northeast of Amarillo, just south of the Oklahoma line. Breaking news from Iowa. The state's highest court has split 3-3, refusing the governor's bid to implement a strict ban on most abortions. A Russia-based cyber gang is suspected in a global hack attack. CBS's Catherine Herridge. American targets include the Energy Department, plus Johns Hopkins-affiliated hospitals in 
in Maryland and Florida, Georgia's statewide university system, the Minnesota Department of Education, and overseas, Shell and British Airways were hit. Now to Las Vegas, where a man's been arrested for threatening a mass shooting at the Stanley Cup final this week. On social media, the suspect threatened to shoot up the hockey game and said the city should be ready for a massacre. Several people contacted authorities, which led to the arrest of 33-year-old Matthew DeSavio. Police say he has a history of mental illness and has been investigated before for disturbing Facebook posts. It's not known if detectives found any weapons in his possession. Stacy Lynn, CBS News. Police in Canada say more than a dozen senior citizens were killed when their bus collided with a tractor trailer on the way to a casino in Manitoba. Driver Caroline Bleakley witnessed the aftermath on the rural highway intersection. I did see a bunch of people on the ground and other bystanders that looked like they were trying to assist on those people. And there was a couple of fire trucks there that were putting out the fire in the bus. On Wall Street, the Dow is up 46 points. A first in the music business. Gloria Estefan made history in New York, becoming the first Hispanic woman to be inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame. That's how my career started. As a kid, I wrote parodies, I wrote poetry, and my husband was the one that actually invited me to start writing music for the band, and I thought, I think I can do that. S&P up four. This is CBS News. Hiring's a lot easier with Indeed. Their powerful platform makes it easy to attract, interview, and hire candidates all in the same place. Visit Indeed.com slash credit. Attention business owners. Stop throwing your hard-earned money away on rent. Imagine owning your own building and saving thousands every year. Sound impossible? Not if you use General Steel. General Steel can help you save thousands by owning your own custom-designed building. Just call 888-74-STEEL. That's 888-74-STEEL to see how much money you can save with General Steel. Our buildings come with a 50-year warranty, and thousands of companies, from Fortune 500 corporations to startups, have trusted the General with their building needs. If you need to expand or start a new business, you really need General Steel. A very impressive General Steel. Everyone's been extremely helpful. I'd recommend General Steel to anyone looking to build a steel building. Stop wasting money on rent. Call 888-74-STEEL. That's 888-74-STEEL. To find out about all our popular quick construction kits, including a 40 by 60 foot building or a 50 by 100 clear span building. Just call 888-747-8335 now. That's 888-74-STEEL. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. A portion of Route 2 in Greenfield is now open after a multi-vehicle crash yesterday afternoon. According to police, a man was traveling with his dog driving westbound on the Route 2 bypass when he veered into the oncoming lane, crashing into a Pete's Tire Barn truck, which led the truck to collide with another vehicle. One party involved was life-flighted to the trauma center and two others were brought to Franklin Medical Center with non-life-threatening injuries, according to police. Authorities have not released names of the victims involved. Plans to use the former Harley-Davidson dealership in Southampton as temporary processing facility for illegal immigrant families is being put on hold. State officials have determined the cost would be too prohibitive, and the property is no longer under consideration. The Department of Housing and Community Development had reached out to town officials several days ago about the site. Along with several others in Western Mass, they were evaluating as options. A former priest in Granby is being charged in connection with stealing more than $100,000 in parish funds for personal use. 
43-year-old Tomas Gorney of Amherst is scheduled to be arraigned today in Eastern Hampshire District Court in Belchertown. Gorney was a priest at the Immaculate Heart of Mary Church in Granby. He allegedly used parish funds over a period of three years to purchase items including power tools, a riding mower, food, wine, video games, and more. The expenses were charged to credit cards that the Springfield Diocese had to pay. Mixture of sun and clouds today with scattered showers and thunderstorms developing mid to late afternoon, a high of 78 to 82. Showers continue here tonight, some drizzle as well, overnight lows of 56 to 62. Saturday looking damp with rain, drizzle, and even some thunderstorms, a high of 68 to 72, scattered showers on Sunday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And welcome to Talk the Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm Bill Newman. And uh, we had, um, I think it was June 3rd, about two weeks ago, uh, my wife and I were driving on 116 coming from Sunderland heading towards Amherst when we saw these plumes of black smoke at about 4 40 was for us, uh, and as we approached um, uh, the university, there were literally dozens and dozens of cars that were parked watching what we came to understand, what we came to see was this uh, horrific fire um, of, at first, one barn um, that uh, it was just shocking to see, and people were taking pictures, some rubbernecking, but everyone just groaning uh, in horror as we saw this. We later learned that a lightning strike at about 4.30 on that day had ignited first one barn and ultimately three barns. Um, it was owned by J&J Farms. It's a farm that owns a farm stand that my wife and I love to frequent uh, throughout the summer. Um, and uh, we, we were just crestfallen when we learned that these beautiful old barns from last century had burned. Um, and who better to talk to us about um, J&J's travails right now, what we're doing to sort of help them out of the terrible spot they've been put in, but the farming community generally here in the Valley. Uh, then Phil Corman of CESA. Hello, Phil. Hello, how are you both doing? I think we're both doing well. This was a really sad and tragic event that I think um, it speaks a lot about community, doesn't it? And maybe you could give us some insight into what you know about uh, this event, how the farm is doing and its owners um, and community. Well, I think, um, you know, it was sort of an act of nature, a lightning bolt that no one could have had any control of or done anything about once it struck. And I think the whole event has been about community. I mean, the fire departments of different towns responding, uh, the fact that uh, none of the cows experienced anything damaging and the way that farms responded to this farm tragedy, all the cows needed to be brought to other barns in other areas. Um, so that was sort of the very beginning response. But then within uh, two days, uh, GoFundMe had appeared for the family and for the farm. And now two weeks later, they have raised over $140,000 from 1,300 different people. And when you go to the GoFundMe page, there's people who just you know were moved and needed to express why 
they were so moved and and the quotes were from like someone said for years we've stopped by the farm for vegetables and the sweetest corn imaginable we were so saddened by the storm's damage and we support you and your efforts to rebuild and someone said jane and bob you're wonderful neighbors and we appreciate the bounty and another person said we're heartbroken by your devastating loss you taught us a work ethic that has stayed with us our entire lives i still talk about my first job as a cucumber picker mm, yeah and um so this farm has been around since i believe 1909 it's the last remaining dairy farm in amherst so it's been kind of beautiful in this tragedy to watch how many lives this farm has touched through so many generations and how people just want to make it whole again. I know that the owner was, was quoted as uh, saying, we have been completely overwhelmed with the support from our local community and our extended farming community. What is the farming community like there in Amherst, Hadley and surrounds? You're embedded in it. Well, first of all, what do you do? What is CISA? And how are you connected to local ag agriculture? So I'm the executive director of CISA, Community Involved in Sustaining Agriculture. We work with over 250 farms in Hamden, Hampshire, and Franklin counties. And our mission's pretty simple, though it gets complicated as we try to reach that mission, which is to strengthen local agriculture and to engage the community in building a local food economy. So a lot of people know us by the Be a Local Hero by Locally Grown campaign. Um, this in our 30th year is a campaign that is not only including the 250 farms, but also another 150 businesses that source from local farms. So that's our Atkins Market, our River Valley Co-op, our Big Wise, our uh, colleges, our retirement homes, our restaurants, all who have made a commitment to buy from local farms. And of course, the beauty of it is when we all go shopping, we can make that everyday decision about are we going to invest in our local community by looking for the local hero logo. So in your capacity of executive director of CISA, you must have an awful lot of contact with farms. Um, are they competitors? Yeah, that's such a great question because it depends on which market we're talking about. So um, they're both competitors and community members with and for each other. So um, they compete on selling into different wholesale markets. Um, but in some of those wholesale markets, it's not necessarily a competition because when you look at dairy farms, we're down to uh, maybe 100 functioning dairy farms in Massachusetts, a drop of 95% over the last 50 years. Um, they all, for the most part, sell their milk wholesale to Agrimark, which is a cooperative of farms. And the, the price of that milk at the wholesale level is determined by some quagmire of unknown dimensions decided on the mercantile exchange in Chicago. I've not yet met someone who can explain it to me. So that's a plea for help if anyone out there can. Um, but so that in that market, there's not necessarily competition per se. In terms of having your farm stand on your farm, 
yeah, there's some competition, of course, and everyone's trying to have uh, people stop at their farm stands, but there's also cooperation. I may not be able to grow all the crops that pull people in, so I'll be buying different fruits and vegetables from other local farms. Um, if I don't have something, I'd be telling you, well, the farm stand or the farm down the road has it. And certainly in uh, extreme tragedies like this lightning strike, um, everyone comes to the rescue for each other. And again, for people who have been farming for more than generation, they know each other, these families for generations. Well, Phil Corman, I don't know um, much, but the little bit that I've heard, the cow, fortunately, I should have said in our introduction that um, nobody was injured, no animals were injured. It was just property damage. Um, just, I'm saying just. These are beautiful old barns that are more than a century old and, and terrible loss. Uh, but um, local farmers took in the cows, took care of the cows. Um, the asparagus harvest, I read was there was assistance in getting their asparagus harvested so that they could get it out to their wholesale and retail. I don't know if they're doing retail, but are they doing retail? Uh, they, I, well, they definitely have their farm stand. So you would call that a, a retail because they're selling direct to people. Yeah. And it's a really nice little farm stand. I know we always get cantaloupe. We wait because they have beautiful cantaloupes at really affordable prices at the end of the year. So I'm glad to hear that they're doing that as well, and that that uh, I heard from even out of staters, there's somebody in New York whose grandmother was raised on a farm, who's doing T-shirts to raise money for the J and J farm. And that was just a heartwarming story to to hear. So, to the extent to which they're competitors at this time, they people just chip in. They consider it part of their job as a regional farm to help other regional farmers when they need it. Right. Yeah, and I think, again, part of CISA's mission is to make sure that the, um, the local food economy keeps growing so local farms, that we want more people farming and we want more people growing locally and selling direct locally. And the more we can engage everybody in their everyday shopping to look towards local farms, the pie grows bigger. And so there's more available to sell to everybody. Yeah. So, Phil, can you help us out on this? The farm itself, I'd like to know whether or not the operation continues. Are the cows still being milked? Uh, and yeah. will the barns be rebuilt? And is there insurance? Tell us more about how the future or what the future looks like. So I actually don't know um, all the details regarding J&J, &J, but if the cows have to be milked. <laughs> well, so I was, was, was going to say we have some very yeah. uncomfortable cows. Someone's got to be milking the cows or something, yeah. right? So that, that again shows the generosity and skill level of the other farms that took in the cows because you can't just say, well, I'll provide shelter. No, they, you know, they need to be milked. And so that's additional work. And um, so some other dairy farms took them in. And, um, and so, I, you know, we all know it takes a while for insurance companies to figure things out. And so I've not read or heard anything directly about how the insurance companies will step in. But for anybody who's gone through this kind of tragedy, whether it's on a farm or with your house, you know the losses, even when insurance supposedly covers everything, is just, you know, is just ever present. So they originally started this GoFundMe at a $50,000 target level and shot past that. And, um, you know, they, they just have so much, the fact that they're, they're willing to stay in the game 
means that the community needs to stay in the game with them to get them back on their feet. Phil, could you go back a little bit to something you were talking about before? J&J is a dairy farm. It's been in uh, operation for over a century. Are the, you said that it's the only existing, it's the last dairy farm in Amherst. There are other dairy farms, though, that have actually, of course, come to the, to the rescue and to the assistance of that farm after this tragedy, this fire on the barns. Are the, is there still a vibrant uh, milk economy? That's probably a terrible way to put it, here in Western mm. Massachusetts. So the farms, the remaining farms are the farms that somehow, some way, despite the odds, have made this generational commitment to continue to do dairy farming. And dairy, far and, dairy uh, farming, dairy farming is, I'd just like to, you to explain, is dairy farming, does that become the primary focus of a farm that does dairy, or is it a mixture as J&J &J has it? Um, so farms have had to figure out how they've survived this competition against huge mega dairy farms across the country. Um, and dairy farms throughout New England have been very challenged. And also the consumption of milk has gone down, though um, milk producers have tried to come up with other ways. So farms like J&J have tried to figure out how do we diversify so that we can withstand these fluctuations in the milk market. Um, so Maple Line has built their own milk processing plant and that enables you to sell milk directly to consumers. And for that reason, you're able to bypass this wholesale milk price that gets set on a national level. So they're able to choose their own price to sell their milk. Um, our family farms has just done the same thing in Franklin County. But let me say that the leap to making processing your own milk is a huge expenditure. Our family farms has shared it's cost them almost $2 million to build that processing plant. $2 million? And the one, one of the few shining lights of COVID was in the midst of COVID when we all were like, I don't want to go into supermarkets. I'm not sure it's safe. And when I go there, I can't find certain foods that I definitely need for my family. The state government with advocacy from lots of groups stepped up and did began this food security infrastructure grant program, which are um, grants to farms and other food related businesses to strengthen the state food system. So our family farms and Breezy Knoll, which is one of the cooperative farms in that cooperative, each got a $500,000 grant. So that was 1 million of the $1.8 million they needed to build the plant. So yes, every time you're buying local milk from Maple Line or our family farms, um, you are keeping a dairy farm going that has made a generational decision to keep the dairy farm. I know incredibly the Willis Farm, which is in Buckland, which won, I think, New England Dairy Farm of the Year. It's a very small farm. They went to robotic milking which is yes. truly incredible cows when they want to, instead of a certain time that the, you know, that the farmer decides is right, the cows say, okay, I want to be milked right now. They go in and automatically get hooked up and they get a little bit of food as a result of doing it. And they are healthier. And I guess production is substantially greater when they do it on their own time. Um, that money for, I think it was in excess of $200,000 for those robotic milkers. 
uh, for the small dairy farm. It came from the very grants that you're talking about right now, is my understanding, um, and offers hope. I know when I first moved to my town, we had 46 dairy farms in operation, and now we have four. Um, we are talking with Phil Corman uh, of CISA, the executive director. We're going to continue our conversation about farmers in this community, cooperators, and competitors. We'll be right back with Phil. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. It's your home for the resistance. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon. Get informed and get involved. I'm Tom Hartman from the Tom Hartman Program. Intelligent talk, opinion, and debate. Join me every weekday, noon to 3, right here on WHMP. 1015-1400-1240-WHMP. We warned you. And now it's here. Father's Day is this Sunday and you have nothing to show your appreciation. Thankfully, it's right at your fingertips at the Shop 30 store. 11 rounds of golf to some of the area's finest courses for just 125 bucks. Favorites like Wyckoff Country Club, Brattleboro Country Club, Northampton Country Club, and Keeney Park. 11 rounds, 125 That's less than 12 bucks a round. What a steal! Perfect for Dad and a perfect price for you. His Father's Day gift is waiting at Shop30Deals.com. San Francisco's North Beach in the late 1950s. A new sound, a new scene, and the rich tradition of American folk music bolts into the national spotlight. Leading the charge, the Kingston Trio. Hang down your head, Tom, do Hang down your head and cry. The Kingston Trio, a night at Northampton's Academy of Music, Wednesday, July 19th. Well, let me tell you of the story of a man Charlie on a tragic and fateful day. Today's Kingston Trio playing the timeless songs. Get tickets now at the Academy of Music website or box office. More than 50 years after Tom Dooley shot to the top of the charts and the Kingston Trio's spirited folk music captured the hearts of the nation, the trio lives on, bringing all the energy to these enduring songs. The Kingston Trio, Wednesday, July 19th, 7 p.m., Academy of Music, downtown Northampton. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we continue our conversation with Executive Director Philip Corman of the Community Involved in Sustaining Agriculture, CESA, um, the organization which uh, its mission is to strengthen farms and engage the community to build the local food economy. We were talking about um, the fire in Amherst or the last surviving dairy farm, J&J Farms. Bill, you wanted to talk to Phil about uh, fa our family fa family so, farms. Thank you. So, Phil, Phil Corman, uh, again, is the executive director of CESA. Those are the local heroes. We all know that, that uh, moniker, that uh, uh, insignia that uh, I think is really iconic now, local heroes. I'd like to know, uh, Phil Corman, and going back to something you mentioned in the earlier segment about our family farms, plural. And, and we all see the, the, our family farms in the milk in the supermarket. And I've often wondered, how many farms are there? Are there really family farms? And how do they work cooperatively together to have their milk in, in their milk products uh, together 
uh, in the supermarkets. Can you help help me understand that? So um, I'm going to step back historically a little bit because our family farms uh, actually also goes back 30 years like CESA does. And CESA started originally with a Kellogg Foundation grant that was trying to see if the for-profit model of advertising could also work for social values. Could marketing work to kind of grow social values that we wanted to represent our community? And so the Kellogg Foundation um, was impressed with how our family farms had started and trying to connect to community. And CESA uh, pitched the same idea to Kellogg Foundation to uh, fund the beginning of CESA to do marketing for the farm community, focusing on local and having that be the value to buy from local farms. So our family farms has wanted to um, have this milk processing plant for almost as long as over 25 years has been the vision and it's taken them this long and over that time period it is now down to only two farms that are part of that cooperative that are producing milk. So it's similar to the decline we've seen in dairy farms throughout Massachusetts. It's two farms and um, those that milk gets processed at uh, Breezy Knoll Farm for our family farms. So they now have total control over the product. It's as fresh as it can be. It lasts a long time and they can also make other products. They can make cream, et cetera, et cetera. But I do wanna say that when you go out and you're buying um, milk in New England, it's often New England milk. <laughs> so it's a commodity, but it's different than other shelf st stable commodities that last for months. It's, a, it's an incredible source of protein that's a good part for many people's diets, if that works for your lifestyle and you're getting your milk from within New England. So that's generally a very good thing. Bill Corman, when we see on the label that it's organic milk, what does that mean? Um, that means that uh, the cows are being grazed on land that has been certified as organic. So there, it's, if it's had to go through a transition period that's happened, um, so whatever products, whatever grass, whatever's in the diet of the cow, it's organic and follows the USDA regulations for organic. Phil, would you be kind enough to go back to something you mentioned before, and that is competition from out-of-state uh, dairy producers? And you said something about a, a national price, and I didn't quite understand it. Uh, I, pardon my ignorance. Can you explain more about that? Yeah. So in New England, I, I wouldn't say the dairy farms are necessarily competing against each other. They're selling off into the same New England wide processing plant facility that is pooling the milk from the dairy farms and then is selling that milk or is making products like cabbage cheese from pooled milk from many dairy farms. Um, but the price that milk is sold at the price that you get when you sell your milk wholesale into the pooled milk market is set at the national level. So if I have 10,000 head of cattle in the Midwest or California, um, I may have certain efficiencies that 
um, a dairy farm with 400 head of cattle does not have. And the ways those cows are being raised may be different. And so it costs me more in New England, New York and Massachusetts to produce the milk because I don't have as many heads of cattle because I don't have as much land as I would out in uh, very big dairy farms. I, I, I also, I just want to point out, um, talk to talk, we're concerned about um, farming in general and agriculture, and we will be having Amy Klipsenstein and um, Paul Lusinski of Sidehill Farm uh, on pretty soon, before the month is over, talking about yogurt making and sour cream making and how that happens in an organic setting um, and buying locally there too. So let's turn our attention to vegetables because right now we are blessed with, and I, I, I don't use that term lightly, I love fresh strawberries. And the strawberries that we get at this time of year are just knock your socks off and fresh asparagus. And uh, of course we have the leafy salad, lettuce and spinach is coming up. But you, Phil Corman, and CISA, you have to rely on the sort of sequence that uh, harvests take. Different ve vegetables come in in a region like this at different times. So all of a sudden we're flush with a particular vegetable, and yet you are arranging for wholesale, wholesale and retail sales of those vegetables. And how does that happen? How do you coordinate so that? I, yeah, so I, I do want to say like, um, it's kind of a joyful thing if you want to try to eat by the seasonality of what is local. So the asparagus comes in, we know Hadley grass, which predates the other grass you can now buy, um, is just um, you know, some of the most flavorful in the world. And we, we have amazing farmers that are farming on some of the best soil in the world. That is no exaggeration. And so great farmers with great soil produce great ingredients for our meals. Um, so the asparagus season's been good. And I think the asparagus taste has been excellent. And we only have a week or two left. So this is the time to gorge out on it and to really enjoy it. As many of your listeners may know, we've taken a real hit with fruit, with strawberries um, and other berries um, because of the frost that happened three week, three, four weeks ago now where temperatures went down to 27 degrees and, and it stayed there for a while. So we're still gathering information. We're talking to the USDA, we're talking to individual farms and our response, we always have a no interest loan program available at $5,000 for any farm that suffers from a natural disaster. We open, that fund up to larger amounts of money if we know there are more, if there are three plus farms who need access to that. So right now we're trying to figure out whether to open up the fund to loans that may be at $20,000, no interest. The farm takes out the loan, they don't have to pay anything back for six months. And then over a three year period, they pay no interest back to CISA. It's a revolving loan fund. We raised all that money from the community and um, right now we have about 140,000 in that loan fund. So if we open it up for the orchards because apples got affected, by the way, peaches got wiped out in February. So you can see that um, whether these individual weather disasters are directly attributable to climate change, we do know over time we're having more of these events. 
And so we have stepped up to do more around climate change at CSUN. I'd like to go back before we conclude, Phil, to ask you about the GoFundMe page for J&J Farms. Uh, and I'm looking at it now. Uh, the community has really stepped up. I think there are 1,300 individual donations already, over $140,000. But this is money that is really necessary to sustain an institution in our valley. And I'm wondering if you could say a few more words about that. So... I think it's incredible. Think about that. 1,300 people took time and money out of their wallet to support a local farm. And we see other local farms stepping up to ask their neighbors to help. And by the way, this is a really hard thing for a farm to do. Folks who have been farming for generations do not want to ask for help. So um, when they ask for help, it's so authentic. We can't do enough for any of these farms that are asking for help. It's not the only farm that has asked for help. Um, Sobieski's River Valley Farm lost 80% of their 10,000 blueberry bushes. They've been growing blueberries for 46 years. They have a GoFundMe page. Well, I'm sorry, um, they lost the blossoms or they lost the bushes themselves? Uh, they lost the fruit. They didn't lose yeah. the bushes okay, themselves. Good. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for that clarification. Um, we know the apple orchards, you know, may not be doing GoFundMe pages, but when you see, um, so we can be doing many things as a community. We can give money directly. We can make sure every day we can, we're going to a local farm or farm stand to buy locally. If we're at other places that are selling locally, whether it's a supermarket or a food co-op or an Atkins market, you know, look for what's local on the shelves. We all, you know, vote every year hopefully. So there are policies at the local, state, and federal level that we can make a difference on. Some of us are privileged enough to invest money from time to time. So it's really a matter of saying, like, why do I live here? And I think a large part of the answer is the farms. And to feel connected to that three meals a day is a good reminder. That is just a great place to leave it. Uh, Phil Corman, Executive Director of Community Involved in Sustaining Agriculture, CISA, thank you not only for being with us today. Thank you for all you do, all CISA does, all our regional farms do. We're lucky to be here with them. We'll be right back. And You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. A portion of Route 2 in Greenfield is now open after a multi-vehicle crash yesterday afternoon. According to police, a man was traveling with his dog driving westbound on the Route 2 bypass when he veered into the oncoming lane, crashing into a Pete's Tire Barn truck, which led the truck to collide with another vehicle. One party involved was life-flighted to the trauma center and two others were brought to Franklin Medical Center with non-life-threatening injuries, according to police. Authorities have not released names of the victims involved. Plans to use the former Harley-Davidson dealership in Southampton as temporary processing facility for legal immigrant families is being put on hold. State officials have determined the cost would be too prohibitive, and the property is no longer under consideration. The Department of Housing and Community Development had reached out to town officials several days ago about the site, along with several others in Western Mass they were evaluating as options. A former priest in Granby is being charged in connection with stealing more than $100,000 in parish funds for personal use. 43-year-old Tomas Gorney of Amherst is scheduled to be arraigned today in Eastern Hampshire District Court in Belchertown. 
Gorney was a priest at the Immaculate Heart of Mary Church in Granby. He allegedly used parish funds over a period of three years to purchase items including power tools, a riding mower, food, wine, video games, and more. The expenses were charged to credit cards that the Springfield Diocese had to pay. Mixture of sun and clouds today with scattered showers and thunderstorms developing mid to late afternoon, a high of 78 to 82. Showers continue here tonight, some drizzle as well, overnight lows of 56 to 62. Saturday looking damp with rain, drizzle, and even some thunderstorms, a high of 68 to 72, scattered showers on Sunday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. Sunday mornings on WHMP means polka, polka carousel. Every Sunday morning from 8 till noon, TZ brings his award-winning polka carousel to the airwaves of the valley, playing the polka classics and the latest polka hits. There are polka hits. Brought to you by Saluzniak Funeral Home, Northampton's funeral home for over 110 years and four generations of unparalleled, thoughtful memorial care. It's polka carousel every Sunday morning from 8 till noon, WHMP. You spend seven or eight hours a night together, and you're supposed to decide if you're right for each other in a matter of minutes? This has never made sense to me. So, when you're in my store, trying to decide which mattress is right for you, at some point, I think you and I just need to stop talking. I need to leave you alone, give you plenty of time to lay down, and maybe even forget you're in a furniture store. Hi, it's Robin. Robin from Talon. Think about it. Seven or eight hours, night after night, and what do you really know about mattresses? I don't mean to make it daunting or complicated. I just think you need two things, information and time. If I give you as much information as you want and as much time as you need, I think you'll settle on a mattress you'll be happy with. At least that's the way it seems to go for most people. Talon Furniture, the small unhurried furniture and mattress store just down the hill from Amherst College. Cabbage keeps for months, corn is good for a day or two, and basil, make that pesto pronto. There's so much farm fresh food all around you, so stop at a farm stand, go to the farmer's market, and look for the bright yellow Local Hero label at stores and restaurants. You live among some of the best farmland in the world. The bright yellow Local Hero label says, this food is farm fresh. Use CISA's Local Hero guide at buylocalfood.org to find local food close by. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back, and I just want to one more thank you to, to Executive Director Philip Corman of CISA, the community involved in sustaining agriculture, and, uh, and the Buy Local, Local Heroes logo. Um, you can find um, more about CISA and about our local farming community, and about our local food economy at buylocalfood.org, buylocalfood.org. Meanwhile, Bill Newman, you just dragged in a special guest. I did, Scott Cohen, for a segment we call Sports, Man. It's been a while, Bill. It, it has been a while, and I don't know how we possibly could have overlooked talking to you about this exciting pennant race between the New York Yankees and the Boston Red Sox. Oh, I mean, uh, no. Okay, let's, let, <laughs> let, us, let, us, let us review. Tonight, there is this much-anticipated, I mean, when the season started, whoa, this will be the second time in, two, in a week that the Yankees are playing the Red Sox. It's going to be amazing. And so we have today or tonight, actually, starting at 7.10, the uh, 
very mediocre New York Yankees with a record of 39-30 and 30 on their way down because they do not have Aaron Judge in the lineup. Uh, against the utterly mediocre Boston Red Sox with a record of 34-35, and 35, playing at Fenway Park, a lot of talk of whether or not the Red Sox general manager, Kyle Bloom, is going to be fired because, well, someone's going to get fired for what the Red Sox aren't or aren't doing. So, Scott Cohen, a pennant race between, well, there isn't one for the Yankees and the Red Sox. What do you make of what is happening to baseball in Boston? Well, I know that uh, Fenway Park will be sold out tonight, despite the fact that they're 14 and a half games out of first place. That's, that is always, the bottom line is, is always the bottom line. Yeah, because hating the Yankees is always good business. Yeah, it's like, you know, uh, that's, I think that's one of the reasons why the owners get away with what they get away with, because Fenway Park isn't so much a, a Major League Baseball park as it is, it's a tourist attraction. And it's, people love a Friday night, whether they're in first place or last place, certainly there's the, there's the baseball acumen that goes along with that. But going to Fenway Park tonight, which with what seems like seemingly a nice summer night, on a Friday night, a, a Yankee Red Sox game, what that is better? the place to be yeah. in New England, whether they're 14 and a half up or 14 and a half out, but they're 14 and a half games out of first place. Well, there's something to that, and I'm struck by the advertising that Major League Baseball is doing on Major League Baseball <laughs> Network uh, this year, in which, for example, they show all the hot dogs from the various stadiums, and they say, it tastes different here. Well, I, I'm not sure it does, but I kind of think it actually does. It tastes does. expensive here, <laughs> is what it does. It's about 5 or $6 for yes. a uh, uh, mediocre would be a generous. Fenway Franks are really made from New York fans. That's, <laughs> that's been that's chewed up and spit out. <laughs> so... Go back a bit to why we care this much about uh, this stadium. And I did read a book some years ago about Fenway as a park and its evolution. Sure. But it is, it's iconic. It's a little bit like uh, Wrigley Field. Uh, what's with these old stadiums with, how to put this, uncomfortable seats, with terrible sight lines, um, with obstructed views, views. Um, with a left field uh, line that is probably less than 300 feet, but mm -hmm. no one will admit it, but it is. Right. Um, I'll tell you why, and I, it's like but I, we I, but but we we love, we love it. it, and I'll tell and I'll tell you why. We just um, my um, uh, my girlfriend, for lack of a better term, uh, ha had her sister come in from the West Coast and uh, for a wedding in Boston a couple of weeks ago, and she brought her uh, 12 year old son. And he's been to Petco Park, but he's never been to anything like Fenway. And, and I was, you know, all of a sudden transported back to when I was a kid. And we took the subway in from Melrose. It was great. It, you know, the typical, typical uh, Saturday afternoon. And I said, this, I said, what we're going to see here is unlike anything you're going to see anywhere else. And I remember, I remember the first time that I went to Fenway Park you walk, you know, you're in, you're in the, uh, uh, the, the dark and all of a sudden the sun's out and you walk up the rampway right by home plate and all of a sudden this green cathedral opens up uh, before your very eyes. And I, and I said to, to the young man, all right, this is when we're going to go in. This is what I want you to look at. And he just like, ah. 
And, and you, I dare say it's not just the first time you see Fenway. It's, it's every it's, time it's you see Fenway. Every, it's every time. Um, I always get, I've covered Super Bowls in New Orleans. Everybody loves New Orleans. New Orleans is a dump. Okay? <laughs> everybody for, for, loves... For listeners who have moved here from New everybody, Orleans. <laughs> everybody who loves Fenway Park, Fenway Park is a dump. <laughs> <laughs> the seats, the food is terrible. There's not enough bathrooms. There's no room to move. It's a dump. Dems but fighting it's, words. But it's our dump, and we love our green, big green dump. Let me talk. Sky Tone, I just want to point out, like, when I was in high school, well, let's go, like the Cape Cod League. Mm-hmm. You're there on the side of a field. It's a beautiful field. You, the, the players it's, are right near you. It's, it's just, iconic. It's like... It, it's like what and they it's read reminiscent about. of how we all started playing baseball when we were just it like, is. right yes. on the grass, sliding yep. our way through the game. Fenway feels like a big version of that. It feels accessible. It feels like the the grass is part of it. It's not like you're in a big concrete monster looking right. down at a little. You know, you I, Buzz, you're right. But I, I'll tell you this: a couple summers ago, um, I went on. Um, I went to Chicago. We saw the White Sox play on a Thursday. We saw the um, Cubs play on a Friday. Uh, off day on Saturday just to kind of tour around. Then we took an Amtrak train from Chicago to Milwaukee, and we saw the Brewers play on Sunday. And, you know, so we toured three. And I want to point out Scott Cohn is not obsessed with baseball. He just, <laughs> he just sounds like just it. Just sounds <laughs> like it. But, you know, you go to these other parks, and they're absolutely, they're absolutely beautiful, and they're big, and they're accessible, and they're, it's just we are so far, romantically speaking, we may have the edge, but as far as going and having, having an experience, we're so far behind the times, and the, one of the reasons why is there's no room to do anything else at Fenway. You know, they, they can only go so much high. They go high instead of wide, and there's just no room to do anything else. So, but it's a beautiful ballpark. I think that we should, uh, don't bother to send your emails. Thank you very much for thinking <laughs> of it. I, the Red Sox management has actually put a lot of money into Fenway. They have. And they have done a lot to try to make the... Uh, bathrooms, well, you know, some something resembling something you might see in an, an advanced industrial country in the mid twentieth century. Right. <laughs> they've gotten mid twentieth century. <laughs> yeah. I think it's uh, improvement, but they, Bill, they've they've kept that character. The the changes have been within the character of sure. Fenway Park. Yes, right, but because they, they can't change the seats, the seats are small. Mm-hmm. The seats are uncomfortable. Right. Uh, but and, again, there's nothing. There's really. You know, despite sitting here having fun talk, you know, talking bad about Fenway Park, there really is there's there's nothing like when you go when the people who are going to go go to that game tonight. Like I said, I don't think it's going to rain. It's going to be a nice summer night. You know, 75, 80 degrees. It's there's no other place you want to be in New England other than in that ballpark. Right, and you can really root for the Red Sox because the. Old timers understand the years when the Red Sox were not expected mm-hmm. to be uh, competing for. The they've had, you know, they've had their moments. They just haven't been able to put enough of those moments uh, together in a row. That's been their problem this year. Well, it's also, I think, uh, useful to note that the Red Sox uh, were expected to be a top flight team. Mm-hmm. Uh, are expected to be a top flight team. 
uh, and the idea that they would not be competitive for a number of years in a row, th- that's the common wisdom, and that's why people are outraged that the Red Sox are under 500 at this time in the season. But that's a sea change from mm-hmm. years ago sure. when no one expected the Red Sox to be competitive at all. Mm-hmm. And that must feel different in some ways. It does. And, you know, whenever we talked about how successful the Red Sox have been, I mean, you know, can you can you imagine being a Kansas City Royal fan? It's like you're you're out of contention um, the day after opening day. You know, we're you know, seasons come, seasons go, things ebb, things flow. It's just, this is, you know, it's just not our year, Bill. <laughs> well, that, Maybe next year is. And that's what I wanted to ask you, Scott Cohen. You you are a an iconic observer of sports in this region. You People have been listening to you report on things. Long time. For a very long time. And Bill is a New York Yankees fan. And other people around here are Boston Red Sox fans. I'm a baseball fan. For sure. And so... And you are a baseball fan, but what's it like to have to report to you about just a regional team rather than report on the best ball that's being played at this time of year by those not, teams that are playing great ball? Yeah, well, I guess you know every every uh, every couple of uh, days, you know, those teams come and and visit us, and we just we take we take advantage of that. I mean, there's so there's so many great stories going on in baseball now. They just just not about. It's just not about the Red Sox. Yeah, um, I mean, Tampa and Atlanta oh my goodness, and Ta- you know, t- and there's there's so many great uh, young players that you know you alluded to, Buzz. A, a lot of times, you know, we're very parochial around here, and we don't, you know, we don't look outside of our own backyard. But there, there's great players coming in and out of Fenway Park every week. And is that frustrating for you as a sports lover? No, I you know I just kind of I kind of take it for for what it is. Um, I mean, I always. Uh, um, most, uh, especially sports writers, um, I think we we always try to take as much positive out of it as we can. If if they uh, just manage three hits and make three errors, uh, maybe their the young starting pitcher has a, has a big night, and that's what we we try to concentrate on. That's great. It, it, we have to take a break. Are you able to stay with us if we take uh, a two minute break? Sure. Yeah, you guys are on till eleven. I'll I'll stick around. Okay, we'll be right back. More with Sportsman, Scott Cohen. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. It is critical that the investigation is not limited to federal violations of gender discrimination, but includes the alleged allegations of corruption, nepotism, abuse of power, and use of position to aid Ms. Cunningham's personal business. These allegations actually require an investigation by a different body than a Title IX investigator where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts. Are you or someone you care about struggling with mental health or substance use? The Behavioral Health Helpline is here for you. Call 833-773-2445 and we'll work with you to find the help you need. Free, open 24-7, and available in over 200 languages. No insurance needed. 833-773-2445. A service of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts operated by the Massachusetts Behavioral Health Partnership. How many great books have you read? What's the next great book you'll read? Find it at the Northampton Outdoor Book Fair. 
this Saturday. Ten bookstores, including Broadside. Thousands of books. A book browsing paradise. Yes, there's fiction. Yes, there's poetry. And children's books. First editions. Limited editions. Art books. Signed books. For a book lover, it's an afternoon in book heaven. Join Broadside and ten more bookstores for the Northampton Outdoor Book Fair in the plaza behind Thorns. This Saturday, June 17th, 11 to 6. What's the next great book you'll read? Are you one of the owner members of River Valley Co-op? One of the 15,000 owner members? I am. Are you? River Valley Co-op celebrates 15 years. 15,000 members, 350 local farmers and vendors, $10 million in local purchases, good union jobs, a strong local inclusive economy. That's what River Valley Co-op is all about. Well, that and good food. Good food for all. Not just co-op member owners. Everyone is welcome at River Valley Co-op. Northampton and East Hampton, wild about local for 15 years. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Scott Cohen. Scott, of course, is a longtime reporter on sports, a longtime announcer of, and broadcaster with regard to sports, and one of the region's most knowledgeable people about sports. Uh, Scott Cohen, I would like your perspective on the new heroes in baseball. Uh, the Aaron Judges, the Otanis, and whether or not they are, in fact, as important as the, I don't know, the, the Mickey Mantles, the, the, sure. the, the, the Willie Mazes, yeah. the Duke Snyders. What's your view? I think they're, I think they're important, to, um, I think they're important to, the, to the people who pay attention to them. But the difference between, you know, I mean, Mickey Mantle was my, my first baseball, uh, you know, idol. Um, I, the tail end of his career um, and all that, but when I when I was a kid, you um, you there wasn't there wasn't ESPN and there wasn't the immediacy of everything. You look forward to getting the Newark Star Ledger and and finding out how many games behind or ahead the Yankees were. The k- kids today have so many things to occupy their their time, and so the ones who if you know for like raw numbers if there were a hundred kids who were mickey mantle fans when i was growing up there's 25 who are aaron judge fans now the there's the kids are just not paying attention to baseball like they used to they've got other things on their mind i still believe that doris kearns goodwin's book wait till next year is one of the best baseball one of the best uh, family Books, stories of her relationship. It's really a story about her relationship with her father. Exactly, sure. And, and she used to keep score by hand in a scorebook, play by play, and then when her father came home, she would tell him about the Dodgers game, right? And what happened, play by play, because she knew how to keep score, something that, well, kids don't do anymore. They don't do that anymore. It's like, it was the same thing like at, 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 family, at, at family gatherings. You know, Uncle Mike would be out in the car listening to the baseball game and, and you know, his, his nephew would run out and that would be their time. They'd sit there in the front seat of the car and they'd listen to the game on the radio. And now if Uncle Mike tried to get his nephew to come, hey, come listen to the ball game on, on the radio with me, the kid would look at him like he's got two heads. No, I'm going to play my Nintendo or, or, or do something else. That, we have lost a lot of that romantic aspect of baseball. Me and all of my friends, I still have. Even the scorecard itself, I, I wrote out in yeah. pencil and, and filled it out. So I, I just have to ask, uh, Louis Arias of the Marlins, he's 
dancing with 400. Yeah, he is. I remember the guy in Toronto, the first baseman, and, and George Brett danced with 400. Mm-hmm. They could never quite do what no. Tim Williams did. Yeah, there it's it's a it's one of the most elusive, you know, milestones or markers in in professional sports. So what's going to keep him from doing it? I that the pressure of it being asked about it all the time. Um, you know, again, Ted Williams didn't have to. He certainly had his challenges with with the media, but nothing like what these what these kids have. But I've I watched the highlights of him on you know ESPN at night. He's he has just got such a sweet and he Fluid. he goes he goes the other way just as much as he tries to pull the ball. Yeah. So we'll see. Hope springs eternal, just like the Red Sox. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'd like to I'd like to go back to Ted Williams for one minute because. Uh, the story of how he hit 400 and the final games of that season is amazing. And you, you want to share that with our listeners? He wanted, know? you know, uh, he, he could have sat out the he, last game. He could have sat out uh, the last game. The la- I think maybe the games, last two, two games, games right. the last two games. And he it was said, a doubleheader. Yeah, he said no. He said I I, I want to play. And he he could have sat down and guaranteed himself that. But but instead he played like the all-time greats and Hall of Famers do. He rose to the challenge, and now we have, you know, the uh, 406 that may never be broken. Right. He was batting 399 point something that would have been rounded up to 400. All he had to do was take the day off, and he said, no, I'm going to play, and he went like six for eight. Yeah, and just and here's a guy who lost a good uh, chunk of his career because he flew, you know, fighter missions in Korea. Right. So... Which is why I should just retire now, because my last guest would be Scott Cohn. <laughs> I'd be remembered immortally. Uh, <laughs> I'll, be, I'll, be, I'll be back again, I promise. All you have to well, do is ask. That's so great. Thank you so much for joining us, Scott. Yeah, Thank you, you so much for joining us, listeners. Have a great weekend. Remember, don't just talk the talk. Let's all walk the walk. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. Caring for someone with cancer is hard. You're so busy taking care of someone else, you have no idea how you feel. There's so much you can't say. You run on adrenaline. You're worried you're going to burn out. Cancer Connection offers support groups just for caregivers, exercise classes to blow off steam, even Reiki. It's all free. Go to cancer-connection.org to learn more or to donate today. Cancer Connection relies on local donations to make its services free of charge. Northampton Neighbors is free of charge and open to all with a range of social and volunteer opportunities as well as services and support for members 55 and older in the city of Northampton. Need help? Want to help? Join us as a member, a volunteer, or donor. Northampton Neighbors is about more than aging in place. We're about engaging in place, this place. Find us online at NorthamptonNeighbors.org or call us at Northampton and WRSI HD2, Turner's Falls, WHMP.com, a Northampton Radio Group station.